This is unstructured. Hey everybody, today I have a kind of a unique guest. His name is John Eckberg. And John, I hope I'm saying your name correct, am I? You got it. Yep. yep. Oh, excellent. Well, John reached out to me saying, well, you do this unstructured thing and you seem to talk to a lot of different people. I might have a story for you. And he immediately got my curiosity up because he kind of wrote out a brief synopsis of a book that he wrote. And this book is called The Juice, Road Dog, and Murder on Bundy Drive. Now, anyone who's been paying attention to pop culture, say, for the past 20-something years, will recognize some of those names. So how are you doing today, John? I'm doing great, and thanks for having me on the show. It's very generous of you. I appreciate it very much. Happy to. Happy to have a story. Now, I want to go first off because... It's kind of a long, meandering mess of a story. So to try to get a handle on it, this all revolves around someone named Glenn Rogers, correct? That's right. Um, and, and Glenn was a uh, career criminal from Hamilton, Ohio, a town north of Cincinnati. I was a newspaper reporter at the time. And my co-author of the book, Steve Combs, uh, came to the newspaper, Cincinnati Enquirer, came to me and said, uh, I'm going to cover Glenn Rogers' trial in Florida, uh, where he had murdered a woman, Tina Marie Cribs. Pretty vicious, uh, bloody murder, too. Knives, the, the whole deal that, that you know, uh, Ryan Murphy's made a, a killing on with American Horror Story sort of thing. Well, the newspaper didn't have the budget to send me down there, didn't have the inclination either, but Steve wrote about it. And I filled in some background from Glenn's time growing up in Hamilton, Ohio, where I was a, a beat reporter at the time. So that's how um, the book initially was launched. Okay, so you, you've essentially co-opted him and he co-opted you. So you could do a little background, he could do the, the trial, and then between the two of you, you could share the bylines? Yeah, uh, just uh, in, in the bylines in the paper. And then after the, the conviction for murder... Uh, he came back and said, I'd, I'd like to do more. I'd like to do a book. Well, I hadn't really considered writing a true crime book at the time or even partnering with somebody on it and kind of backed away from the, the project initially. This was about 1997, I think. Um, but he persisted and he had a, he had a, um, a way about him. Uh, Steve was a, a triple a baseball umpire a paramedic, so the, the all the medical uh, terms in the book are legit, and a uh, a tax accountant. Uh, <laughs> He's still with us, right? Oh yes, yeah, yeah, he is. He's okay. still lively and still with us. He also wrote a musical. One of the saddest things that I've ever heard of in terms of arts is he wrote a musical that's never been produced on the life and times of Paul Revere. Um, and I always thought, you know, with Hamilton's popularity, Steve ought to trot that thing out. But I don't even know. I haven't talked to him in a while. I don't know that he if he has it, but um, he was he's an, an entertainer and a thespian and a guitarist. So he was this kind of Renaissance man that came up from Florida and said, "Let's do a book on this on this guy because there's more to his story than meets the eye." Yeah, what, what his... is special about Glenn Rogers? I mean, I, honestly, at if you look at him, it's it'll sound rude, but he looks a little bit like a um, hillbilly killer Dwayne Allman man he looks like he belongs in a Dwayne Allman band somewhere yeah yeah there was that country there's that country thing going on to him and it's kind of low rent um, um, white America oxycodone uh, disinvested Hamilton Ohio was was a disinvested mill town Uh, and Glenn came up there uh, out of school Probably by the time he was 14, flunked out, uh, was a one-man crime wave in most of Hamilton through his teenage years. Him and his brother. And uh, what what did they do? Well, they just they would do petty robberies, petty thefts. Uh, they'd go in. They uh, one thing that came back to kind of resonate with me was that they uh, they would always leave false clues wherever they went in. If they had a B and E, they'd uh, the cigarette butts that they'd scooped up at the bar or somebody's hat that they'd stolen because that's, that was what you did when you did these little B and E's. Well, eventually Glenn Rogers, um, frankly went haywire, went on a killing spree through the South, um, 
killed four women. Well, before Spanish. we get to that, I definitely want to get into the background because I, I don't oh, want to yeah. rush okay. the story too much. No. Now, okay. I, I think it's interesting. You mentioned that um, definitely in the book that he toyed, almost was toying with investigators. Did he have extra knowledge to do this? Because you also had written, I think, that he worked as kind of a narc or informant. Right, right. He was a drug informant in Hamilton, Ohio. They would actually pick him up from the jail um, and go out and make a low-level drug buy. Um, every low-level level drug buy was a $100 transaction for him. So it was sort of the underbelly of the war on drugs. He was in cahoots with the um, uh, county prosecutor, delivered a steady stream of, of people on, on drug charges, knew that drug world, and sometimes his family members as, as well. Um, when you do that in a small town, though, you pay a price. And in his, Glenn's case, as soon as the guy gets out after 18 months, who's the first person he's going to come looking for? And so Glenn would have to come and go. I mean, he wouldn't hang around Hamilton, Ohio very often. And he sort of drifted down to Kentucky and then drifted out to Vegas and L.A., so um, he um early just, 90s. Okay, so just so I I've got it tracked. At the same time he was doing B and E breaking in houses, he was also working for cops. Yes. So he, he was kind of playing against everybody. Right, and he wouldn't necessarily do his B and E's in Hamilton, Ohio. I mean he'd roll down the road to Lexington, Kentucky and okay. you know, do his do his B and E's down off the Dixie Highway somewhere. But in Hamilton, Ohio, he was he was known as the uh go to guy to set up uh, when they say his record is as long as your arm, it literally was as long as your arm. Uh, on petty because they bring him up on petty drug charges too or they he'd be part of it and he'd just never show up in court they'd let him walk he'd go free um or head back out on the road which is where the nickname road dog came from he traveled from town to town um in a greyhound bus and him and his brother called it out road dog they they moved in and out of homeless shelters he did specifically uh, with case houses and um, do very bold daylight B and E's robberies. Uh, he was he didn't have a lot of fear of getting caught. That that was what amazed me about this story more as much as anything it was just how brazen he was. Um, when you ask a good question, what separated him and this from other uh, other people? I'd I'd say that was probably what kind of piqued my attention. Well, that's um, that's definitely interesting, and there was a little bit more to him as well because I wanted to um, kind of get into the past because it all sort of goes together. From what I understand, he also was a prostitute. A male prostitute. Uh, David Monahan's work up in um, out of Australia. He he found that Glenn. It's sort of a twisted Oliver twist. Um, had a, uh, a woman cohort, and they were uh, prostitutes up and down the truck stops along Interstate 75, um, between generally between Cincinnati and Dayton, uh, in the teen in his teenage years when he wasn't in reformatory, where he was abused. He was part of a, 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 a reformatory system that got closed down because of the uh, rampant abuse of the inmates by the guards, uh, and. Although his Glenn's juvenile record was sealed, uh, I suspect that he was um, uh, victimized there. So he was, um, shall we say, a prostitute going both ways sexually? Probably, yeah, probably. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I did, uh, uh, I write about getting a call from, at the time when Glenn was most wanted, getting a call from a, a, a Globe, a tabloid reporter, who wanted that a very explicit headline. And so I, I found Glenn's um, uh, girlfriend at the time, and uh, she uh, she offered a pretty eye-opening interview for me. I mean, I didn't ever get back to the Globe with it. It was more or less a professional challenge. And what what did she have to say? Well, she she said there was an incestual relationship between Glenn and his mother, uh, which would also offer uh, kind of a striking 
uh, ration, not rationale, but a, a striking um, in, indication of what made him the monster he became and why he set off on a path of killing women who reminded him of his mother. Um, I, I think that that, you know, that kind of pathology um, uh, is, is not only deep seated, it, it happens in real world America and what's created are monsters because that's the ultimate question is how did I go on to be who I am? How did you go on to be who you are and how did Glenn Rogers become who he is? Um, it's, is it the bad seed or is it, is it society? Is it both? Um, you know, you would argue if you're the detective out of Hamilton, Ohio, that it was just bad seed that these guys were bad to the bone, bad to the bone. But on the other hand, uh, when you have the kind of upbringing that he had, and which we detail in the mitigation phase of the Tina Marie Cribbs trial, uh, part of the book, some people would argue, might be tedious because we dive into that. We leave that original uh, trend, original book the way it was when we wrote it in 2002. Uh, but he had a horrific upbringing. Uh, you know, standing in line for free cheese, his brother, who went on to uh, own some pizza huts in San Diego, escaped that poverty due to the kindness, I think, of an aunt and uncle. Uh, Glenn wasn't so fortunate. Uh, the same he, brother who um, robbed with him? A, diff- a different brother. A different oh, okay. brother. Not, not the brother that would do the B&Es. Um, he went on to say that they would they would wait in line for government cheese all day, um, and because they got there late, because their mom and dad were slack or whatever the reason was, they'd get up and at five o'clock. That if you weren't, they'd close the door and lock it on you, and you'd have to come back the next day to get your cheese after standing in the rain all day. I mean that kind of that they, when they took baths at night, there would be ice on the uh, on the bathroom sinks that um, the, you basically had dish towels to dry yourself with. Uh, shampoo was dishwashing detergent. You, on bath night, uh, there was a hole in a wall that was uh, like eight inch hole with, and this is North, this is, uh, this is on the Northern states. I mean, Ohio is a cold state. And he said, you would run in and take your bath and get out as fast as you could. Uh, they, 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 they had no money. And the house was ramshackle falling down. Picture a house on a haunted house that's kind of all ramshackle and twisted in downtown Hamilton. And that's where they grew up. Um, so it was, I look at it and wonder how is it that someone grows up like he grew up and becomes who he became. And I think I was intrigued too by, you know, how I, I became something else, whatever that is, you know, writer, um, kind of in media relations now. Yeah, you had, um, I think, a specific anecdote of where he was with um, a woman, Nora, I guess a, a prostitute cohort was that, and right. they were, I guess, in coitus, and his mother came in and pushed her out of the way to join them? Yes, yep. My eyes, I went, you have to, and I couldn't write about it. She's now gone, so you can't libel the dead. But the fact is that I knew that going into the, um, going into much of what I later wrote, what I later wrote, I'd frame it that way. And, and I think this, I wanted to tell the full story of Glenn Rogers and what he went through. And that story is part of what made him, um, want to kill women who reminded him of his mother. Um, did he kill his uh, father? I believe he killed his father. That and that was more or less a, the way. When you're a reporter setting out on a book like this, I don't know how other people did it. What I did was I would just sometimes um, you get desperate. You know, um, a, a, um, work is like the handmaiden of anxiety. I mean, I wanted to, fit, and so I asked the guy sitting at a. At a on a stoop outside the courthouse. I, I looked at him and I just said, did you know Glenn Rogers? I just got to ask you this. I was just walking by making police rounds. And he went, well, I did. Well, right away, he think, okay, he's telling me what I want to hear. I don't believe him. So I, I said to him, oh, where'd you, where'd you know him at? He goes, well, he drove in a Ohio taxi. I went to myself, well, one, ain't no way he's going to know he drove in a Ohio taxi unless he drove in a Ohio taxi with Glenn Rogers. But I still wasn't satisfied. So I asked him, um, well, has anybody else drive there with you guys that I could talk to? He goes, yeah, Charlie. And I go, how can I get a hold of him? And he says, well, 
he's up at he carries groceries and does carry out up at the IGA, Rose's IGA. I went, oh well, that's great. And then he went, no, no, I'm wrong. I'm not anymore. He got he kept trying to convert people to Christianity on the way to the car, so he got fired from there. <laughs> and once I heard that little anecdote, <laughs> I thought to myself, you can't make that up. This guy's telling the truth. Whatever he's going to tell me from here on out is true because he, it's just too complex. So you know, what did and he tell he, you and, after that? He told me, he said, one night at 3 in the morning, and when you're a reporter, there becomes this um, father-confessor figure that people have where they want to tell you the truth. They don't get asked every day by a newspaper reporter. It's kind of a weird job anyhow. And so people generally want to tell you what they know to be true or something that they think is important. And he said that one night, Glenn Rogers, who he avoided, by the way, he said, I always tried to avoid the guy because he just had a hair trigger and could go off and he was the most violent guy you ever saw. He goes, he pulled up and I, I pull in and he was sitting there and uh, we start talking and he looks at me and says, I just killed my, I killed my dad. And I didn't know what to say. Wayne Brockman went, I didn't know what to say, but I just knew that I did not like the direction this was going. And then they they each got fares or what have you, and that was that. But that was what Glenn Brockman told me. And it's my notion that Glenn killed his father. It was a it's a classic Oedipal complex, Hilljack Oedipal complex story that that is told here in between the covers of this book. Um, a guy who killed his father and made love to his mother. Well, Glenn um, has bragged to other people before that he's harmed or killed others or would kill them, correct? Well, I mean, I don't... He didn't... <clears throat> he, he didn't uh, spare any opportunity to brag about himself okay. as near as we could tell, right? Right. <clears throat> Yeah, he's but, a um, very confident um, person after a fashion. I know that you can actually watch footage of him being caught ultimately on YouTube. And a reporter right. came running up to him and he was like, <laughs> talk to me at the jail. So I, even then, in what would seem to be the highest stress thing of all, he seemed pretty ready to chat, just not at the moment. <laughs> he, um, yeah, when oh, that, that, high-speed chase that you see on, on YouTube, too. We need to frame that. Um, Glenn knew that they were after him. He went back to the only place on, two places on Earth where the FBI could get him. One would be Hamilton, Ohio, and the other would be the hills of Beattyville, Kentucky, where he had family, and everybody knew it. And they had a hunting cabin. And it was where Glenn had his killing field, too. So uh, he's wanted all throughout this county. This is not a large county. Only a couple of thousand people live kind of its foothills of, of the Appalachians. Um, so he drives past the stakeout, um, and uh, the guy, the cop notices him. He goes by, but he doesn't do anything. So the next time Glenn drives by, drives now coming in the other direction, he slows down, looks at the cop, throws a beer can at his car, and takes off. Basically, Glenn Rogers got tired of running, went to Kentucky, a state where he believed there was no capital punishment, and essentially gave up, thinking that um, he would be in Kentucky, life in prison. It's something he knew in half a year. Hey, half of his life he probably spent in prison, and um, you know, in and out, but not half. I mean, he wasn't afraid of a jail cell. I was and, almost uh, like a that, Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy sort of almost oh, yeah. got yeah, himself caught. And, this weird last-minute thing. Right, and and... Uh, the other thing that's interesting to bring up Bundy because out of Hamilton, Hamilton, Ohio is known for another uh, serial killer, a uh, guy named Donald Harvey, who was an aide and nurse at um, the hospitals throughout Kentucky and VA hospitals in Cincinnati. He's called the Angel of Death. Oh, About God. 90 people, they ran, they lost, they lost track of how many, he's, I think he's dead now, but they lost track of how many people. They really couldn't ever figure it out. They know it was in excess of 90. Um, and as a general assignment reporter from Hamilton, I got called out to, uh, um, didn't get called out, but I got, I got assigned to go to Donald Harvey's apartment. And um, so I went out and, you know, nothing there, no one doing 
by the way, we always tried to get somebody to say he was a quiet man who kept to himself. Mm. If you could get some, if you could get somebody to say that, everybody in the suburban newsroom had to give you a dollar uh, <laughs> the next day if you could get it in the newspaper. So anytime I'd go to a scene like that, someone's house, and then ask if they knew the person. I would always ask, it was, would you say he's a quiet man that kept to himself? It's not easy to get. I've never in my career, 30 years there, got anybody to say that, even though I always asked as sort of a leading question. But in any event. Really? I thought they always are, said that. So that's know, a true? what you think. It's not what you think, but it's not true. You cannot get someone to say It's very difficult to get somebody to say that. Maybe I wanted it too badly. Did they, um, did so, they actually say, no, he was kind of creepy? Uh, they, nobody knew it. Nope, to answer your question, uh-huh. nobody knew Donald Harvey very much. He kept to himself, literally. But they didn't know him enough to say. They didn't want to be quoted. Okay. Eric, you flash ahead. I think it was two years later. I'm back at the same four-unit, uh, two duplexes. Glenn Rogers lived there. Oh, my God. I didn't, know it at, I didn't know it at the time. But I now often wonder if Glenn Rogers' time in that four-unit, uh, really two duplexes, outside Trenton, Ohio, meshed with Donald Harvey, the, uh, the, the 90-person serial killer, if there were two serial killers living there, and if indeed they swapped, serial, they swapped murder stories, if they were addicted together to killing. But the juxtaposition of that uh, always struck me as profoundly odd and coincidental. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, I mean, the Hillside Stranglers, they did it together. But, um, but he, yeah, Donald has- Harvey... Uh, was um, I think he got murdered in prison a few years ago, but he would, if he didn't like you, he would kill you. And if he thought you were suffering, he would kill you. Um, and he did it through IVs. Well, Glenn killed a guy named Tommy Wolsifer um, in the book, uh, book one, by pouring whiskey into his IV. So the hmm. parallels between the two struck me as, if I had to ask Glenn Rogers anything, it would be, did you know Donald Harvey? But then again, could, could you even believe him? Whatever he said, you know, I, you know, you know, if you could believe him. So, um, interesting. But, but, yeah, so. when we produced the book, though, we were we were blessed with Steve had the foresight to ask the prosecutor for um, more detail than she was had been willing to give him, and she just told him, "Here, take the box," and it was a judge's box of records. She said, "The judge told me to dispose of it. I'm disposing of it by giving them to you." And, Which, and therein, on. that's remarkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're almost downplaying this. You have essentially all the evidence that was just handed to you. Yeah. What if yeah, there's an appeal? Just, I mean, good God. Just, I'm sure it's not the only copy. You know, I mean, it's not the only copy. It was the judge's copy. She, the court clerk, oh, okay. maintains copies. You see, I mean, it's just the judge's paper to her. Uh, you know, she didn't want to get that around. You just like get rid of it. Uh, but in, in what we found, though, what we had was not just, not only everything from the Tina Marie Cribs trial in Florida, but we had police investigatory records from California for a period of time uh, of Glenn's time there in California. We had addresses of where he lived. We had jobs that he held down. Um, okay, so tre- it was, before we dig into yeah, that, treasure trove. Pardon cool. Me. Let's get a timeline going here. So after he ran amok all over Ohio, Kentucky area, you said he went to Vegas. And when was this? 80s? When? Oh, yeah, it's vague. But in the early 90s, he, we know he did earthquake repair work uh, following the earthquakes in Southern California in 1990, about 1993, I think, was when that was. Mm. And, and throughout the early 90s, uh, he was in California uh, as a part-time printer, as a, he had his own paint and construction company for a time. Uh, he worked for a construction and painting company. Uh, he uh, actually went to school to become a, a maintenance uh, apartment building main, uh, guy with a degree in apartment building maintenance. Hmm. Um, so over that course of about three years... He was also um, dealing too, right? He was dealing. Yeah, he was dealing, which... We probably surmised that he was um, dealing under the name of James Peters. Uh, James Peters was the son of Mark Peters, who was murdered in Hamilton, Ohio, by Glenn Rogers. Glenn grabbed the son's ID, 
went off to California. As was he Mark convicted Peters. of murdering Mark Peters? No, and he was. That was on. That was on his. Um, that was on his mind, though, for quite a while. They they never actually. It took him even a while to charge him with the murder of Mark Peters. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure he's even charged with the murder of Mark Peters today because of the other convictions that happened. And Mark Peters becomes this old man, you know, forgotten footnote uh, from October of 1994 when uh he was last seen with glenn rogers oh so that's around the same time so what happened with mark peters mark peters was a um a guy that took a glenn rogers in as a tenant kind of as a helping with moving furniture around because he had a furniture refinishing store lived in hamilton ohio a fixture there and was um found on a hillside in kentucky uh wrapped in a shower curtain and uh, deposited there by Glenn Rogers, who had turned on him while in Hamilton, um, murdered him, although I think Glenn told his brother, hey, I pushed him, he fell, he hit his head, he died, right? Well, uh, in any event, Mark Peters um, uh, was yet another victim of Glenn Rogers. Glenn then leaves Kentucky, the Kentucky authorities actually say, we don't know that this is Mark Peters, even though Glenn's brother took authorities to the body. And he said, we don't know who this is. We have to wait for the pathologist's report. That's 90 days out. Glenn disappears and is off the charts again, back in L.A., uh, living the dual life as a male hooker, uh, guy painting kind of a, um, uh, what's the name of that guy from Saturday Night Fever, uh, a house painter by day. Uh, oh, Vinny something, out- yeah, Johnson Bolt is all I know. And out, out with the hoi ploy, uh, selling himself by night, uh, probably marveling at all the diamonds that are on the women in the nightclubs where he was hanging out, too. Because he was, after all, a jewel thief. He was a minor jewel thief all the same. He was a jewel thief. Um, in the box of records, and this was interesting to me, too, were other murders that were typified by Glenn Rogers. And that's, and I say that because I believe that he left a spotless crime scene. He left crime scenes that were devoid of any, but the most of any presence that he was there. Uh, he swabbed up his crime scenes. He always killed with a knife, uh, swabbed up his footprints. Always, uh, Tina Marie Cribs, uh, uh, Linda Price in Biloxi, Mississippi. He was meticulous about it. Uh, and, and he also always killed with a knife. He claimed when he was arrested that he had murdered 70 people. Uh, That's kind of be- common, though, isn't between, it? Here's what's interesting to me about it. Was he said, I don't know, 40, 70 people. I don't know what the number is. But if he was a hitman for the Dixie Mafia or the Armenian Mafia, uh, and if he killed one a month since Mark Peters, it would have been about three years since Peter passed that he had had that conversation with the detective in the Kentucky jail. Uh, and for him to say, I don't know, it's 40 guys ago. Uh, there was one guy that um, he looks up in the jail in Kentucky and he sees Glenn Rogers getting captured uh, with the footage you saw. And he starts literally rattling his cup around, along the jail and demanding, demanding that the deputies, because he's in jail for murder, demanding that the Jeopardies deputies come and deal with it, because that was the guy on the screen was Mark. Now, Mark was the guy who showed up when our uh, cup rattler uh, opened the trunk of his car, and there was the guy who was the no-pay drug dealer. They pulled the no-pay drug dealer out. Mark takes a knife out and cuts his throat kills him on the spot mark, leaving our mark who leaving mark was glenn rogers to this uh, okay. guy oh okay <laughs> and so he was a hit yeah he was a hit man he, he was a hit man clearly for the dixie mafia uh ends up that mark ended up doing i don't know he did eight years and they finally let him out monahan told me but um there are people like that who are on death row right now because they are there because glenn rogers showed up and dispatch somebody with a knife. Uh, and in this case, uh, the cup rattler in Kentucky thought they were just going to rough the guy up. Um, mm. There was no roughing up people with Glenn Rogers. Um, he was, and that, and that was a, 
we thought initially that he was uh, a bragger. That when he'd say, "Oh, forty, you know, guys." No, I mean, I don't know what the number is, but without any, without a whole lot of trouble, in the first book, we found three or four other people that clearly Glenn Rogers killed them. I mean, the the, the cause and effect and the proximity. Carolyn Brannon and Winchester lived in an apartment building near him. Uh, Kelly Camargo up near in in Hamilton, Ohio. Uh, the, without a lot of trouble, we found a lot of people that he had killed. Uh, and the scary thing about Glenn Rogers, I think the scariest thing about this this whole story is that if he's living in a community of two million people, that means there are two hundred of these guys in America. Mm, maybe I, I I would think hope that he's a little more rare than. than I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Um, okay, so on that meandering thing, he was apparently going back and forth between Ohio and California, I guess, at the time because. It killed Mark Peters in 94 and right. the big story or the lead that we've been bearing for a while the, took the fall place of nine, the fall of 94 he killed Mark Peters okay and that was after what um <laughs> a famous crime that took place on June 13th in 1994 yep 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 he's on the run from that crime Okay. Um, now, leading up to this, um, I want to lead a little bit, and hopefully I'm representing it correctly. You theorize that he may have um, come across Faye Resnick and have been dealing uh, drugs with her and possibly had gotten to know or meet a person, Nicole Brown Simpson. Right. In the, uh, in the, the club scene of, uh, of Hollywood. And whether they met, um, my guess is they met while he was doing uh, earthquake repair work. Um, and they probably went, can you, can you get your painter, house painter, can you get us some reefer? Can you get us some coke? And Glenn, of course, says, yeah, I can make all that happen. Now, was, and she, he Nicole and, was Nicole doing drugs at the time? I, I've not really looked into this story that much. Well, I, you know, (laughs) Faye was apparently Faye was, and she claims Nicole was. So the question I think would be, you know, uh, was Nicole and Faye and OJ doing drugs? I'd have to say, yeah, (laughs) a hundred percent. There's, you know, but that isn't, um, that kind of behavior is generally thought of as being a victimless crime. So I want to frame it that way, one. But the fact is, is that it doesn't become always, it isn't always a victimless crime. Sure. When, um, you know, there, there's, um, I think, is it two of Ron Goldman's um, friends within six months before who worked out of this, I don't know if they worked out of the same restaurant, were victims of mob hits. So mob hits was not an unusual uh, mm. thing, apparently, in L.A. at the time. I had a, I had somebody who later, who recently has written to me, who said that the L.A. police were looking for a, uh, a knife killer in and around L.A. at that time. They had unsolved murders. I, You know, my Glenn Rogers work is done. You mentioned got, um, Hungarian mafia in the book, but... Just earlier, you said Armenian mafia, and, and this is Just Eastern European. Okay. Eastern to me, it's Eastern European. And the other thing is, I'm relying on what Glenn Rogers told a detective in Kentucky as to where we got the info on that. I mean, that comes Glenn when he told the guy I hooked up with this Armenian mafia or Hungarian mafia, um, and and with Monahan, uh, who also has done a documentary on based on much of, I think, Road Dog's uh, uh, groundwork, that uh, there was an international criminal who was convicted of kidnapping a California businessman via Interpol who played a minor role in the Glenn Rogers story, a guy named Steve Kiley. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's... Once we heard that, once I heard that, I went, well, then it's not preposterous at all. We have a psychopath 
uh, the uh, mob needs psychopaths to do their uh, to, to put fear, uh, so so no one's you know not everybody isn't stealing from them. Uh, Glenn was a perfect setup for that kind of occupation. He had no, I don't know, he didn't have any moral compass. He was he was total merchant of death. Okay, so just to pivot and kind of roll into the story, um, you I think had uncovered that O.J. Simpson and Nicole Simpson were toying with each other and that their relationship, even though they were divorced, it was uh, kind of on again, off again, hot, cold. And he um, had like stolen her jewelry at one point and hid it from her. Just yeah, to that was what, her. That, that was interesting to me that it, it, it wasn't and it wasn't a hide and seek thing um, in 89. And this was Petrocelli's book. Uh, which is a terrific book, uh, although he was he was sort of misguided at, at not bringing Rogers into it, but I now understand why he didn't. But he points out that in 89, uh, New Year's Eve, uh, they get into a big fight. They get into a fight. Uh, O.J. leaves, goes to his golf buddy's house, uh, waits for the uh, police to leave, uh, comes back to Rockingham at 1.30, goes upstairs, gets a bag of jewelry, and takes the jewels out and doesn't bring them back to his golf buddy's house, but puts them underneath a neighbor's garbage can, goes back to his golf buddy's house. At about four in the morning, he sends A.C. Cowling over to the garbage can to get the diamonds. So I realized that diamonds had a symbolic and probably a real deep, meaning to a kid from the ghetto like OJ, they were, they were money. And he was not going to let her get away with the money then, the diamonds then. And all of a sudden now there's a motive for why OJ would want to uh, have Nicole Brown Simpson attacked. And that is to get the diamonds. Okay, um, perfect. So your speculation, and I just wanted to lead in with that, that um, foreshadowing, but right. I'm, Ah, uh, you call it speculation. I call it connecting the dots. Whatever it, it is, still alleged, <laughs> and it's not a, um, it's not firm. I mean, you're pretty certain of it, but you know, oh, the it diamonds. Is, um, not the diamonds. The um, idea that O.J. Simpson said, "Hey, I want to hire somebody to go rob her." Yeah, right. Of I these diamonds. No, I don't have any firsthand, uh, uh, firsthand knowledge of of that happening or um but okay. so your, your the reality is is the that... reality is glenn did tell family members that he was going to sting put it was going to be a big haul for him okay uh, with a former pro football player and his wife so paint uh, a picture one yeah what once happened? i learned once i learned that the diamonds happened in 89 it then led me to conclude, all right, I got to tell the story because now we have a motive for OJ going to Bundy Drive. Is the, the, my, my premise is that he came to his maintenance guy and said, I hear you do a little work on the side. Can you do a robbery for me? I'll pay you 20 grand. It'll be a piece of cake. You just show up. Everybody's at the dance recital. Here's the key. You go get the diamonds. You come out. I'll be smiling at the dance recital, and they won't have any proof it was me. Okay, so now I'll, just to it, sum it, it up, he he hired somebody, namely he hired Glenn Rogers, and said, "Hey, go rob these jewels for me. I'll give you some cash." Right, right. Give you half up front, half after it's over. Now, what do you think happened? Do you think O.J. knew that she was not going to be alone? You had mentioned that he was a bit of a peeping Tom. No, I think he, I think he thought that they could get the diamonds during the dance recital. When Glenn came back from the dance recital, there were no diamonds. Well, Nicole must have known that, that O.J. was going to be coming for her diamonds. He had done it before, so she's not going to ever do anything but wear them probably the, the the big money jewelry especially at the daughter's dance recital 
in in Brentwood, Hollywood. You know, you're gonna you're gonna be looking. You're really gonna be dressed up. Let's face it. You're gonna wear if all the diamonds you have. So, Glenn comes back and tells OJ, diamonds weren't there. Maybe they were there and Glenn kept them. Maybe they weren't. Who knows? Hmm. OJ says we go over the traditional way, and uh, I'll drive, and you go in and rob it. Oh, okay. So he went to he went, he went to burgle it then, to begin with. Yeah. Not to right. rob it. Oh, okay. Right. No, well, the, the first one, I don't know the nuances. I think the robberies, when you go in, you expect somebody to be there. Burglaries, when you go in and no one is going to be there. Right. So the first time, Glenn burglared. The second time, under under this scenario, O.J. drives Glenn over uh, to rob her. Okay. Just in and out. Wave a knife at her, scare the crap out of her, take her diamonds, get the jewelry, get out of there. Now, um, this is significant. Now, did mm-hmm. they enter together, or was OJ mm-hmm. just kind of like waiting out in the car? Uh, I'll I be out OJ, here. Go get it. Yeah, I think OJ was waiting out in the car. Okay, and and probably has Goldman come by, who's got the glasses, and when he sees Goldman go in, and hears "Hey, hey, hey." hears the dog barking and growling. He knows that Glenn Rogers now is probably going to have a fight on his hand. And he wants to prove a point to his wife too. Never once were thinking that it would escalate into, into a a serial killer butcher slaughtering everybody on the patio and cutting OJ's hand. Okay. So, so OJ maybe went in to go warn Glenn. No, probably went in to try to cool things out at this point. Yeah, or something. Uh, or saw Glenn killing. He might have he might have felt, uh, I don't know if there's altruism in O.J.'s uh, backbone. Probably not. So it wasn't probably to actually um, uh, stop harm from happening, although he would probably argue that. But it, in any event, I think O.J. at this point entered the patio, okay. if only to see what was happening. Okay, now you had mentioned in a book that Ron Goldman is a karate expert or martial arts expert of some kind. Right, right. And, and legitimately, and he, or just a reputation? No, no. I think he, he had a couple of a couple of levels. It wasn't, I don't think it was top six. I don't think it was six or anything. But I think he had he he was savvy uh, and 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 knew how to fight and knew how and knew karate. Now, which and that which go ahead. Did he have defensive wounds showing that he wasn't an altercation? Yeah, there's a wound on his left thigh that uh, matches the way Glenn would kill people. Glenn would stab for the femoral, uh, usually from in his best all possible world from behind. Uh, but he would he would cut for the femoral artery in the thigh. And out of the 27, 28 torso wounds on Ron Goldman, there's this mysterious left thigh. Probably what happened was Ron, who knew karate, uh, probably went to kick at the knife. His shoes were cut, uh, dogs barking. At some point in time, OJ now probably enters the scene because there's a real deal scuffle going on. Uh, gives him another kick. And my theory is he stabbed in the thigh. Uh, which is typical Glenn Rogers hit the femoral and, uh, and then he likely moved in tight with the knife and Ron Goldman probably took a couple of good shots at Glenn's face. That was my question. Did he have marks on his hands or fists to imply that he had hit someone? Yes. Yeah. His knuckles, both hands are bruised. Okay. Um, which means you hit teeth, by the way, okay. I think. Um, and um, But O.J. had no did, facial wounds. O.J. has no facial problems. The next day, you know, mugshot, it's a perfect face. Okay. Monaghan uh, had researched and found that Glenn um, called in sick the next day, said a piece of air conditioning duct had fell on his face, and he was never seen again at that company. Okay. Probably ran off with the truck too, but by not by not 
running, Ron Goldman did something heroic. He showed us that he showed us not who maybe knifed him, but he showed us who did not hold the knife, mm-hmm. and it wasn't OJ. Okay, so to wrap it all up, your contention is not that OJ is an innocent lamb here. Oh, heavens no. In in effect, he would be convicted of murder no matter what, even if this went down exactly like you said, because it would be two of them in the commission of a felony and somebody died. Right, right. And and at this point, um, if he would be brought back up on charges, he could, evidence from the first trial could be used in the second trial, a criminal trial, if it's a conspiracy to grand theft, if it's a conspiracy to murder. Um, and I, so I think OJ uh, could face, uh, without a big stretch, a conspiracy charge if indeed he conspired with Glenn Rogers to commit a felony theft. Hmm. Um, and that, you know, whether that will happen or not, I don't know. One of, one of the elements that was we found that is so deep, so, so kind of it, it, it's almost too far out there for me to bring up, but I'm going to bring it up anyhow. When when he was caught, Mrs. Glenn was caught in Beattyville. In his car, they did an inventory, about 11 pages of stuff. Every little cigarette butt, everything you can imagine. There's a pair of tennis shoes. On the pair of tennis shoes, they were bloodstained. Uh, these shoes were shipped off to Florida. They found that the blood did not match Tina Marie Cribs, so they weren't used in that trial. Uh, but Presumably, they're still in the Hillsborough County court system. The question is, is why would Glenn come from California through four states across the Southland, commit murders, uh, get rid of evidence from the Tina Marie Cribs? He got rid of evidence from murders. That wasn't un- unknown. He took pictures of himself with his victims. He used the watch as a, um, a time to mark his kills, much like he did with Nicole Brown Simpson. He did with Tina Marie Cribs. And yet he hung on to a bloody pair, a ten, pair of tennis shoes that had blood stains on them. I have a weird theory and, that it could be. I mean, other than what you're saying. He liked to plant evidence. Yeah, he just liked to plant evidence. You're right. You're absolutely right. So you're, could I, he have had that on hand? Hey, oh, oh I'll drop these off on my next endeavor. Or... He also likes souvenirs. Or are those tennis shoes his souvenir from Bundy Drive? Could be. I don't are know. Those, are those tennis shoes still have DNA in them that can be checked? Uh, but you're right. Glenn did like to plant clues. The glove at one scene, a glove behind the house when he went to collect his money. The hat, he could have stolen that hat. Uh, did it belong to Jason? I don't know. Might have belonged to OJ. Glenn didn't care. He knew it would be a false clue and it would throw off the police investigators. Once you place a, 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 a scheming co-conspirator on the Bundy Drive, a lot of questions have answers. Hmm. So your theory is that perhaps all the actual evidence is questionable because it could have mostly been planted. Exactly. And my my notion is that the defense team knew knew we're going to go at the plants, a single drop of blood on a sock in the middle of the bedroom floor. I mean, it's a clumsy crime scene. It's something an eighth grader would do, i.e. Glenn Rogers. But they went right at those because they knew their client didn't leave those. Mm. Somebody else left that, uh, I think. Now, you know, there are probably open questions that will never get answered. Um, the, the, but if you look at the crime scene, you'll see swabbing. Somebody swabbed that crime scene up. And Glenn Rogers swabbed his footprints from his crime scenes. I think he was at that crime scene. You know, the, the, if, it's one, if it's one crime scene, it's, that's one thing. But when you, when you see the pattern repeating over two or three crime scenes, it, it sort of becomes a signature of the killer. And I think, I think we have that in the cases that involve Glenn Rogers. Sure, and I think he told a profiler that at one point or something. Now, on right. to the future. Um, I think we do need to flesh out and say that this is not a new thing, um, this theory. It has been around for a while, and 
some people have fought against it, including the um, the Goldman family. Yeah, I don't know. Um, what my guess is, they think OJ was a single killer, which means uh, he'd have to dance through the crime scene, pirouette on three toes, uh, manage to dump uh, all of his bloody uh, uh, material uh, somewhere somehow, and that uh, he had the um, had the anger and the will pull that kind of crime off as opposed to what I think is that a, a criminal saw an opportunity to set a guy up and he was a serial killer and didn't mind killing people anyway. Now the Goldman family, I think by not enabling, or at least by not acknowledging that a conspiracy existed between OJ and the higher guy, much like OJ hired guys to go get the Heisman, mm-hmm. um, enabled, um, well, prevented a criminal justice system from uh, stopping a man who would go on to kill at least four other women and do it in a rampage of fury throughout the South because he had a thing for his mother. Well, had they... And you and you can't you can't say that if they would have acknowledged there was two killers in the scene, uh, if they would have sought out Glenn Rogers, they they could have prevented those other deaths. Well, nobody was looking for Glenn Rogers or had any clue at the time, did they? Oh, they had a clue. The New York Daily, yeah, the, 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 the opening. You're right. I mean, it went back to the Daily. I think the Daily News uh, uh, opening day. Uh, Glenn Rogers is in a front page story. Uh, confessing to a guy named Tony West that he had killed two two people. Well, for a newspaper reporter to save that story for uh, the opening day of the trial means he didn't find out about it a day before. I mean, they sat on that for a while. So, yeah, you're right. This this angle has been out there and dismissed by many people for one reason or another. What I know is, is that Glenn Rogers was on the scene i believe he could have been he could have been identified he may have been stopped and over the next year uh there would be a number of people alive today and families uh would not have lost mothers sisters and daughters i see you're saying that last rampage um potentially potentially could have been prevented you know you, you you can't predict the future but right. on the other hand, by not acting, don't you create a future or you allow a future to be created? Uh, I, I think that I, you know, and it's 2020 hindsight, obviously. But to me, when I, when I started looking at it from a critical perspective, it was clearly a stage crime scene. Hmm. Um, the only question was who? Right. They depended on the police. That was preposterous. Um, so who? Well, I think it was Glenn Rogers. I know it wasn't the police. I mean, that that's the cra- that's that'd be the craziest thing ever. Uh, the guys who never worked with one another are going to jeopardize thirty-year careers to, uh, st- you know, stick a Hollywood actress or high actor uh, can get a conviction. I mean, they're not gonna, they nobody cares. You know, objectivity is another way of saying I don't care. And detectives who handle hundreds of homicides a year, they really don't care, um, other than to get the bad guy. I mean, that's what they care about. Right, right. That, unless it something looks bad on them, and then maybe they can shift or something like that. I mean, right. But um, uh, but the, the the question of whether the shoe is still out there and does it hold DNA from um, uh, Ron and uh, and Nicole uh, and and Glenn, there was a drop of. Uh, there's blood. The other thing that I always found was that, that it just doesn't add up because there, there was blood under Nicole Brown Simpson, uh, her fingernails that, that differ from anybody else who we know is at the crime scene. Um, it's a, 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 a B in an EAP genetic marker. And what she had under her nail um, is not in, it wasn't Goldman's. It wasn't OJ Simpson. They have a different EA type. And she would have had to scratch herself 
um, and there was a drop on her thigh. So those two elements, which were offered in the opening argument and then quickly kind of lost in what ensued in that trial uh, by, by Johnny Cochran, that also points to the fact that there was another killer on the scene. And if he lost a tooth, uh, which Glenn did about this time, according to his family members, in a fight with Ron Goldman, there would have been blood dripping from his mouth onto Nicole as he finished her off uh, with that uh, Colombian necktie, I think they called it. But the fact is there was blood under her nails, defensive uh, uh, blood that didn't come from anybody else on the scene except her. So maybe she scratched herself, but I don't think that's likely. God only knows and that kind of a mess. Yeah. Well, at least... There is one good thing. Um, Glenn's not getting out anytime soon. No. Um, I no. don't know if he's going to be executed. I know he is on death row. But it seems to be kind of one of those things where he may linger there forever. He, uh, he had an overreaching prosecutor during the penalty phase who uh, told the jury that it was their duty and they had a duty and you, you can't say that. I mean, it, it, so the, the penalty phase in Florida offers this limbo for Glenn, um, that he, um, has taken advantage of. And it, I, I, I look at it from time to time to see if the courts resolved it yet. And it doesn't seem like it's going to be resolved any too, anytime soon. I think he's one of several dozen people that are in that same, um, um, legal limbo of having a judge and the jury deciding the criminal side or the penalty phase. Uh, and he, he paints, uh, on the side, which is outrageous to me that he, uh, I don't know if he sells these paintings or not, but like he, John uh, Gacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Um, I'm, I am curious though. I, and, if, uh, I would like to know if he knew Donald Harvey. Um, and, and if so, um, because the, the parallels between the death of Tommy Wilsifer and how Tommy Harvey or Donald Harvey killed people, uh, just to, just to pat, uh, and then the proximity that I think they had from that apartment building is just too pat. Um, I I hope that the overriding lesson though of of the of the whole sordid story of Glenn Rogers and um, the juice is that you 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 create a future when you don't act. I mean, I think every law enforcement officer in America ought to read this book, but of course I'm going to say that, right? But I mean, really, (laughs) (laughs) really, really, there are some real lessons here about what happens when you don't act. It's a high stakes game. Those guys are in. Um, so. Well, it's, it is a fascinating story and you know what? Thank you so much for, you know, coming on here and talking about it. Oh, well, I, I appreciate your interest, and I hope my rambling wasn't too much. Um, I can I can really get off in some tangents sometimes. Uh, no, it's a great story, and we need to leave some in the book for people to grab. Don't ask me about Pete Rose. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was another box that I had. I've, I've since misplaced it in my... You know when John Dowd uh, uh, released the uh, material on Pete Rose... He put all of his working papers into the public record, printed up 30 copies of it. It was like the size of a post office box uh, and gave it to all the news media outlets at the time. So there was no real need for Pete to get a temporary restraining order because everything is already out. And this giant, I always thought that was an interesting thing. Well, I'm one of the few guys on earth who've read the box. Uh, and I have lost it in my attic of all places somewhere. So maybe once I, if I ever turn that into a book, perhaps I can beg you to put me back on. <laughs> well, we might explore that. But thank you so much on this one. Thanks again. Mr. Hayes' office, how may I help you? Andrea, it's Marilyn over at Kennedy Parker Construction. Hello, Marilyn. Would you like me to connect Mr. Parker to a Mr. Hayes? A fish surrounded by sharks. A secretary cursed by desire and ambition. 
introducing The Diarist by Donna Barrow Green. The Diarist, an addictive psychological thriller, satirical, suspenseful, and full of twists. Available on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Yes. I'm sorry if I've hurt your feelings. Or if something I've said has led you to believe I think you're incompetent. It's just been so long since you've given me any encouragements or compliments on my... Andrea. I do notice you. I like that blouse on you very much. You look very pretty, just as you are right now. Oh, well, I... It's very pretty on you. Thank you. What sort of fabric is it? It's silk. It's lovely. You have excellent taste in clothes. I notice. Would you mind removing your cardigan? My sweater? Yes, so I can see the blouse in its entirety. Why? I like it very much. You see, I do notice you. You know that, don't you? I don't have to tell you I notice these things. You know when I like something, don't you? I don't know. I repeated his words in my mind. I notice you. That was it, wasn't it? I wanted someone to notice me. Not Andrea the daughter, the wife, the secretary. Not even Andrea the artist or ad girl. I wanted someone, anyone, to see me. More than anything, it was Richard. Please don't think unkind of me, dear reader. Thank you.